Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On today's show, we're going to be talking about uh, something that has become a bit of a media phenomenon in recent weeks. Uh, Not like phenomenon, phenomenon where you can't avoid it. But if you're online to any degree, you have probably heard the term by now. Uh, The term is quiet quitting. It's uh, roughly the idea that people are just skating by at their jobs and rather than quitting their jobs that they don't like, they are just choosing instead to do the bare minimum to avoid getting fired and call it a day when their day is done. And this is um, a problem, apparently. It's sort of shocking the uniformity with which everybody has come to describe and discuss this pattern, if it even is a pattern in recent months, because as of like late July, there was no mainstream media coverage of the term. And now basically every outlet has a take, if not more about it. Oh, it's not a surprise. This is exactly the uh, evolution of the no one wants to work uh, into the quiet quitting. It's entirely, in my opinion, allegedly manufactured from the capitalist class and the people who are all in collusion to make sure that none of us ever have anything good ever. Uh, so that's that's what I'm thinking. And, and it is... And you can kind of see that in the fact that it has been very uniform in how people talk about it. It's um, basically the same lines over and over and over. Like, let's lay it out there. What happened here is every time working people realize to any degree that they have power through the labor that they have to sell to make a living, every time they do anything like unionize, push for higher wages, or in this case, realize that they don't actually have to completely murder their social lives and their emotional stability and dignity to keep a roof over their heads and food in their mouths, then capital resets the rules. Right now, we're in the middle of a week where the Federal Reserve Chair has openly said he's going to cause a recession because working people are getting paid too much, and that's a problem. At the same time, uh, when it comes to this this quiet quitting thing, you've had this whole media push because it's literally just people realizing that they're not as replaceable as they were told they were for years. After the, we had, as Lou mentioned, we had no one wants to work anymore, which was an attempt to basically say everyone should just report to the crappiest job they can find nearest them and accept whatever crappy wage for it they can take, they can get, pardon me, and that eventually turned out like everyone kind of eventually realized that that's not really how it works. 
and that a lot of these jobs were always bad, were always paid badly, and deserved more. So now the next thing has to be, oh, since it turns out actually everybody is working already, and they just want to be paid some amount, the only thing you have left there is, well, how much effort are they putting into the job? Are they wearing the right amount of flair? Are they uh, showing up to meetings that they don't need to? Are they burning the midnight oil? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, just to, I guess, put a little bit of context here. I did some Google searching. There's no mention of the term quiet quitting in like a mainstream media outlet before August. And there had been some rumblings of like a YouTube video or a video on TikTok in the months prior. But the first mention I could find in a reasonably large outlet comes from The Guardian on August 6th. The headline here is, Quiet quitting while doing the bare minimum at work has gone global. And here the idea of quiet quitting is described this way. Rather than working late on a Friday evening, organizing the annual team building trip to Slough or volunteering to supervise the boss's teenager on work experience, the quiet quitters are avoiding the above and beyond. The hustle culture mentality or what psychologists call occupational citizenship behaviors, which cursed phrase, cursed phrase, don't like Mm -hmm. that. Instead, they are doing just enough in the office to keep up, then leaving work on time and muting slack then posting about it on social media. How dare they? Mute Slack. Unbelievable. There's sort of, um, you made the reference, uh, Noah, about uh, not having the enough, enough pieces of flair. Uh, for listeners who are not familiar with the movie Office Space, there's a famous scene in which a waitress is criticized for not having enough pieces of flair on her uniform and there's no minimum requirement for pieces of flair, but she doesn't have enough. She needs more. And here we're getting into sort of similar territory where the minimum is not actually being treated as the minimum. Because if this is a problem, then what we've been describing as the bare minimum is below the minimum. There's sort of a disconnect here. This is going to be the most boomer I'm going to get on probably any punching out episode we've done so far. Very excited to hear what's coming here. It's exactly as you guys said. It's the minimum isn't the minimum if this is a problem. Or it's a bunch of excuses, I think, for people and and for a cultural phenomenon of people not wanting to accept or, or not seeing work as their only source of fulfillment. And if you're not throwing everything in your, wa- in your fulfillment, like we've done the whole gig culture thing and how that the, the hustle and grind and how that is toxic and how uh, that doesn't solve any problems and you're just working harder to not go anywhere and not get anything, especially uh, pandemic and post pandemic where people worked their butts off. They worked 60-hour weeks. They got sick. They died. And for what? To be told that that we can't afford a raise, that corporate profits are through the roof, but you can't afford health care and you need to work 80-hour weeks? Devil's advocate, I think there is something to the idea of quiet quitting, of people not 
seeing value in overworking themselves. But that's what it is. It's not necessarily a negative thing. It's just a culture shift. And that's what that's the big difference. Within a couple of weeks of this Guardian article, there were similar articles in pretty much every media outlet. Uh, New York Times, August 23rd, headline, Who is Quiet Quitting For? Uh, NPR, August 19th, What is Quiet Quitting and How It May Be a Misnomer for Setting Boundaries at Work? Uh, Harvard Business That's a Review. Big maybe right there. Yeah. Uh, August 31st, quiet quitting is about bad bosses, not bad employees. A rare, you know, sane take in all of this. But effectively, every outlet had their say on this. And, you know, as we talked about, it was sort of a way to describe the problem of, quote, no one wants to work anymore without actually reckoning with the numbers of how we're like at record low unemployment. You know, there was a real disconnect between the measurable statistics and uh, the rhetoric around people's lack of work ethic. And so now we're moving into the less measurable territory of, well, are they sending enough emails in a day? Are they responding to Slack after 6 p.m.? And, you know, they shouldn't be. Yeah. Well, it's and and that article you quoted at the beginning, like a lot of the stuff that they were talking about was intangible or not intangible stuff, but like stuff way outside your job description, like volunteering to organize an outing or babysitting your boss's kid. Like that's uh, definitely not in the category of your job for almost everyone. Um, Definitely in the category of brown nosing for sure and kissing up. And nobody likes that either. So, like, what do they want from us? They want they want us to be completely subservient and bend over backwards to meet all of their needs. But forget our needs. We're nothing to them. Is what I just keep hearing over and over. Yeah. No, this is the latest example of how the thing that actually makes capital mad is that they ever had to pay their employees at all, given a choice capital would be using slave labor right up until now. And this is the kind of thing that makes it especially obvious because we went from no one wants to work anymore, which was never true, to no one wants to work hard enough anymore. And the reason that we went to that is because we live in a country and, you know, all of these takes are coming from American and British outlets. So let's include the UK here because, boy... We haven't, uh, the world has not dunked hard enough on the United Kingdom this week. A lot going on there. Yeah. We don't, we don't have time to unpack a little bit of that. But (laughs) between the US and the UK, you've got two countries that have prided themselves forever on a, especially among like the middle and upper classes on this idea of a work ethic that A, does not exist. B, they're not the classes that follow it which is a huge deal as far as this is concerned. If you're Matt Iglesias and you're working as the intern at Rolling Stone unpaid of uh, 25 years ago or whatever it was, and your duties mostly consist of like getting a few copies done or getting coffee for your boss or whatever, that's fine because you're not actually learning to be a journalist. 
We know that. He hasn't learned to be one since. What you're actually learning is, as Lou said, how to brown nose, how to make the right connections so that you can get ahead in the business. That's what you're actually doing. And, uh, and, and I think there's something to the fact that every outlet needed to have at stake because, well, the way modern journalism works is you're all competing to impress a cadre of upper middle class editors of journalism school graduates who all know each other, who all know the people you're covering, and you need to impress them or your career is going right in the toilet. I mean, just this week, we had a bunch of, we had another round of media layoffs across the United States. More and more newspapers are getting bought up by venture capital. There really is no end in sight. And and we're going to be left without a competent news media. And one of the ways you can tell that we're left without a competent news media is that this is the kind of thing we're talking about. And then you combine that with the fact that after the pandemic, we effectively live in like a post-reality world where you can just, I mean, we've always... Humans are creatures of vibes. That's always been true. But now it's like those vibes can directly contradict reality. Every number on the planet can be uh, can be saying the opposite of what you're seeing in the paper, but people will believe the paper or what's on the TV in front of them. That's how we're getting, you know, that that's how we ended up with all of this idea that there's a massive crime wave. That's how every cop in the world has apparently exposed themselves to fentanyl in a way that scientifically doesn't work. And now we're supposed to be looking for it in Halloween candies because, as a friend of mine put it, drug dealers apparently work the same way as freemium software games. And now, on top of that, you've got this idea that people are somehow the villains for not being willing to not just go above and beyond the call of duty, but like above and beyond what any reasonable person should consider their work is. It's, I mean, it's, it's disgusting. And frankly, in a country that made sense, it would be considered criminal because this is not a, not only a way to build an unhealthy society because we're already there. God knows, but this is a way to ensure and we'll, I think this will this will be more relevant later. But this is a way to ensure that future generations of this society grow up with an extremely unhealthy mindset. Uh, there's a bit in this Guardian article that tries to provide analysis on the trend. Uh, cites a professor of uh, organizational behavior at the University of Nottingham and the director of its Center for Interprofessional Education and Learning, uh, Maria Kordowitz, who uh, says here that the search for meaning in work has become far more apparent. There was a sense of our own mortality during the pandemic, something quite existential around people thinking, what should work mean for me? How can I do a role that's more aligned to my values? I think this has a link to the elements of quiet quitting that are perhaps more negative mentally checking out from a job, being exhausted from the volume of work and lack of work-life balance that hit many of us during the pandemic. Um, this is sort of overly broad, in my view, as a descriptor of what's happening here. You know, maybe we can say that the pandemic has caused people to reassess their values, but we referenced office space earlier in this episode. The idea of doing the bare minimum at work is not a new one. It's just one that now has a fancy new alliterative title. I, th- I think to reference a book that I bring up a lot on the show, uh, Sarah Jeffy's book, uh, Work Won't Love You Back, you know, there's 
if anything, this quiet quitting harkens back to an earlier time when people weren't expected to identify with and gain quote unquote fulfillment from their work, but instead treated it as transactional. I give you eight hours of my time in exchange for pay. And there's a lot of reason to think that maybe that's healthier. And you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there that the hearkening back to an earlier time, because what, what workplaces have tried to do is try to make it so that you deepen the relationship with them by offering creature comforts. So tech companies are particularly famous for doing this. And no surprise that media, which is something that tech bros have way too much time on their hands so they can read all of these outlets and all of these takes. And famously, tech workers are some of the ones that are most expected to do ridiculous amounts of work for not a whole lot of extra benefit. Tech companies were particularly famous for doing things like, you know, putting in slides and getting catering and laundering your clothing if you have to stay over and uh, having daycares and stuff like that. So they they went, they offered those so that you would come to identify with the workplace. So that the workplace became family, became home, alienated you from your life outside of work. And it instead became your primary social milieu. And the thing about that is that those workplaces are now angry that they ever had to supply that. In the wake of the pandemic, they're starting to take them away. And what they're realizing is that when you take away perks from people who have long enjoyed them, they get angry and they stop working as hard. So now you need an excuse for why it's not your fault for cutting pay, for cutting benefits, for cutting anything um, and for treating your workers worse. It's their fault for not being willing to recognize that they should work just as hard as they did before. As Lou was saying, after years where they've been asked to work 60 or 80 hour weeks, after years of pay cuts, after years of benefit cuts, after years of getting sick and dying, they've been asked to, to, on top of that stomach, being asked to do more while being given less. And when they refuse to do that, they can always call the Federal Reserve Chair and say, hey, we need you to intentionally worsen the economy. I think that, again, in a country that made sense, uh, I can think of several references to like France in the 1780s and 90s that could be useful here, but I probably can't say them on this show. Yeah, Ryan's yelled at me for doing that before, so better play it safe. There's one more um, bit from this media coverage that I, I think is worth sort of analyzing to a degree. Um, it's from the New York Times article on this. Um, it quotes a uh, Matt Spielman, who is apparently a career coach in New York City and the author of the book Inflection Points, How to Work and Live with Purpose. You know what type of guy he is from that title. Quoting the article, he worries about people engaging in quiet quitting as a means of getting revenge on a company. Quote, quiet quitting seems very passive aggressive, he said. If somebody is burnt out, there should be a candid conversation about that, and it should be both ways. Just saying, I am going to do the absolute minimum because I am entitled to it or I have issues doesn't really help anybody. Above all, Mr. Spielman believes that quiet quitting prevents people from finding jobs they love, which provide them with a sense of meaning and belonging. Quote, you work four, five, six, sometimes seven days a week, he said. There is no sadder thing to waste all this time in your life trying not to enjoy and be engaged and being excited in the work you are doing. Just on its face, you can hear that and think, 
yeah, this guy's making a good point. You know, you should be engaged in the work you are doing, but you don't have to be. You like, again, we don't go to work because it's fun for us. We go to work because we need money to pay rent and pay the electric bill and et cetera, et cetera, pay for groceries. There's sort of a, an angle that he is not at all considering to this, you know, he views jobs as life identifying in a way that doesn't seem good. If you ask me. Yeah. It's, you know, personally, given my druthers, I would rather go to a job that I do find fulfilling that I am passionate about that I care about and want to succeed in. I don't have to be like that, but that's what I would prefer. And that is what I look for in a job. And I think the pressure to find that for everyone is to push people into vocations where or callings. And the people who find their calling are so much more likely to be abused in their workplace um, because they're supposed to be doing that for the passion of it and not for the paycheck. And that is counter to the reality that we have to make money in order to survive. We have to pay rent. We have to buy groceries. We have to do this. And we also have to like rest and recharge and do that performance as well. Otherwise we get burnt out and we can't do anything. And pressuring people into jobs that they are passionate about is a great way to exploit people. And that's what the rhetoric has been for the past 20, 30 years, honestly. Of It's why teachers can't get good pay because they're not supposed to be there for pay. It's why nurses can't get good pay because they're not supposed to. And all of these very beneficial jobs for society can't be well paid because then the wrong people, quote unquote, would be attracted to it. So it's bad for the workers. It's honestly bad for society, but it is good for the bottom line to have people who are passionate. And that is really the issue, I think. Yeah, I I think that's all well put. Um, We're going to take a little break here. When we come back, we're going to talk a bit about, well, is this quiet quitting actually a problem? Is it actually happening? And, you know, some alternate views on the issue, so to speak. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey guys. We've been talking about this uh, media trend of quiet quitting, the new term being used to describe 
doing the minimum required of you at your job the and avoiding being fired because we need a nice uh, social media friendly way to describe not really caring that much about the job you do. We've discussed in the last segment, like all the media attention this idea has got and, and all the new analysis of it. But I think, you know, while the articles we've discussed have largely described it in the sense of, hmm, this seems bad. This could be a problem. You know, as we noted in the first segment, there are alternate ways of viewing this trend. You know, I, th- I think it's worth placing it into some context because not only does it come from a time following the no one wants to work anymore problem, so to speak, there's also like real statistics about how a lot of people left their jobs during the pandemic and in the last couple of years. A Pew Research Center article from this past March says a majority of workers who quit a job in 2021 cite low pay, no opportunities for advancement, feeling disrespected. Um, There was much talk about the, quote, great resignation being this idea that as people were reexamining their relationship to their jobs and reexamining whether their jobs cared, whether they lived or died, They were taking new opportunities and deciding not to stay at their current place of employment. Um, And so to some extent, the quiet quitting trend builds on that. It's for people who are not fed up enough to leave, but who don't particularly care for the place they're working. I mean, that's pretty much exactly what it is, is um, it's a media spin that there is alternative views. And, you know, maybe there is some truth to the idea that people are far less likely to go above and beyond at work now. Um, You know, as you said, Ryan, in the first one, there was that NPR article that said, it's not quite quitting, it's called setting boundaries. And I think that is something that I've at least heard more people talk about and and actually establishing and, and preserving work-life balance. And part of that is in um, the switch to work from home and the switch out of work from home, where people felt they had more control over their lives and liked that. And then when they're forced back into work, they either quit or you know, they they just don't care that much. It's not there. They see that there's more to life than what you do for a living. Uh, so it's not a bad thing and it could possibly be an actual phenomenon that's happening. So it's interesting, you know, uh, especially in compared to the previous media wave of the nobody wants to work where there, there's there could actually be some evidence to this one. Um, they still both are framed a lot of times in the idea of workers don't deserve what they're asking for because they don't, you know, they're not proving that they're worthy of it. Uh, and it's that aspect of it that that needs to be drummed out, tarred and feathered away, if you can do that to ideas. But yeah, I, I think there's actually something to the quiet quitting. I, I really do, because... Yeah, I'm seeing it, or at least I've heard of people doing it. I don't particularly do it just because I'm weird, but yeah. 
<laughs> I'll say, you know, I, I, so I'm a teacher and no way. Huh. Thank you. Who could have, who could have guessed, right? And I'll tell you right now that after the pandemic, during which I got sick, during which my benefits were cut, during which my pay was cut below inflation multiple times, I certainly don't feel like putting in as much effort as I did before. And what I will say is I already wasn't one of the hardest working teachers on the faculty that I'm on. And part of the reason that I'm not is because I long ago noticed that all of the hardest working teachers I know are still deeply unhappy with their job. They might find a lot of fulfillment in it, but they're also constantly angry at themselves for not doing more, or they're sad that they couldn't do more. And it's because there aren't enough hours in the day for you to humanly do more than they're doing. They're putting all of their heart and soul into this job, oftentimes to the detriment of their social and family lives, and they're not really getting anything for that. And what I realized a couple of years ago is that I wasn't going to survive in this profession much longer if I continued to treat it the way that you're always told to treat teaching, which is as a calling. I had to start treating it as a job uh, in order to be able to, number one, do it well, and number two, to be able to look at myself in the mirror and say, you know what? I left the building. Maybe I'll check emails later, but... I have a dog and a cat and I'm married. I have other people to take care of right now. And for a couple of years there, it was okay. And that was fine. And then this year arrived and suddenly all of the same expectations that people had before the pandemic have come back and increased. Now, this is partly because of the student population that I was dealing with, but it's also partly because everybody's decided, oh, we're back to normal now. Oh, it's open season. Teachers should be available 24-7. They should be able to answer anything. They should be unpaid babysitters. They should do all this extra stuff because that's what you signed up to do, right? If you didn't want to do that, then you should have gotten a different job. And I wouldn't call what I did quiet quitting, but <laughs> what I did find interesting is that I have since talked to other teachers um, in similar situations to mine, in similar buildings to mine. And my leadership, my administrators have done, uh, put in a lot of effort into making us think that all of the problems that we're seeing around us are in our heads, that it's actually not as bad as we think it is, that if you talk to other teachers, um, you'll find out that it's actually the same and so on. And it's not. Like, we are experiencing terrible leadership. We are experiencing leadership that wants us to find fulfillment, but then takes away the things that allow us to be fulfilled. Um, one of the things about having good health care, one of the things about having retirement benefits one that don't go down, you know, negative multiple percent every time because they're not pensions, they're in the stock market. What, uh, and therefore exposed to, again, whatever the capital wants to do to it. One of the reasons that you give pay increases and all of that is to show people that you give a damn about the work that they do and that they should be rewarded for the fact that they, again, continue to show up. I found out about teachers who've gotten three $8,000 in their paychecks as COVID bonuses. We have had our pay cut several years in a row, 2020, 2021, 2022. Meanwhile, 
uh, my workplace apparently took all of its paycheck protection money and stuck it in a vault. And just left it there to do nothing with it. We've had downsizes. We've had people lose their jobs. People who were great teachers that students liked. And you look at that and you say, why am I making an effort? As long as I'm not getting fired, why am I even trying? Clearly this place couldn't care less about me. They care that somebody is in front of the kids. They don't care that it's me. And once you do that, it, it's pretty easy to do the bare minimum. Of course, the joke here is that if you're a teacher, the bare minimum is a pretty freaking high bar anyway. Because this, this country, and by the way, what's interesting to me too, is that when you turn it around, because right now we're in the middle of a lot of, again, if you're online, a lot of discourse about like what's reasonable to expect out of students, particularly post-pandemic, particularly with you know the rise of smartphones and so on. And there's this whole thing about like, is it the phones and whatnot? Uh, that that are causing students to lose focus or not be able to read long passages and so on. What's interesting to me is that I try to, in my pedagogy, communicate that it's okay to not try that hard. That you shouldn't have to be going max effort at all times in every single class because that's not a realistic expectation. And I try to peg my grades and my assignments to a point where it's like, it's okay if you zone out in the middle of something, or it's okay if you need a little extra time, or it's okay to bring stuff back next class and that kind of thing. And I try to communicate that and be very clear about that. Um, and I'm told that that's good pedagogy by people who in never in a million years would be okay with applying that rule in their workplaces. And people who certainly would not be okay with teachers taking that as a guideline for how they do their jobs. There's a um, article in CNBC from late July, so right before the quiet quitting uh, trend took off, um, cites a report from McKinsey and Company, an organization we have discussed on this show in the past. Um says 40% of workers are considering quitting their jobs soon. And it takes a look at, well, what's happening after that point? Um, says over like the thousands of people they looked into, about half of people who quit have pursued new opportunities in different industries, but that percentage is higher in some industries than others. Uh, quote, more than 60% of workers who quit jobs in the consumer retail and finance insurance fields either switched industries or quit the workforce entirely, compared to 54% of workers in healthcare and education who made such a switch. So it's been noted that there's a teacher shortage in this country at the moment because a lot of teachers like Noah have seen the writing on the wall and said, I can't be here in the long run. I need something else other than this because it's killing me. And you know um, what's interesting is the same media that made this huge deal about quiet quitting, literally because Vox has written on both of these things, tried to write an article saying that the teacher shortage wasn't real, that it was anecdotal, that that part was true, but that if you looked at like the general statistics or something, it wasn't actually real and didn't really go deeper into it to note that in many cases, the reason it's maybe lesser than expected is because it can only get so bad in a lot of places. 
there's one quote from this article from uh, the author of the study saying, uh, for a long time, you didn't leave a job unless you had another one lined up. That's what everyone was taught and what people did, she says. But that has changed so dramatically over the last 18 months. Now people's attitude is, I'm confident that when I want to work, there will be something for me. Now, I have some perspective on this in that just a few months ago, I left a job without anything immediately lined up. I was working a job that had me working very stupid hours, just an annoying schedule. It was an easy enough job. And I could have well done the bare minimum and gotten by another six months or another year there. But I realized it wasn't working for my life. And within a couple of weeks, I found a job that I have no real passion for. It's not something that I love, but it better fits my life. It's a transaction I'm more willing to make. Also pays more. Um, as an aside, uh, when I left that job, I had been wrangling over the decision of whether to leave when my contract was up. And, you know, I announced that I would not be staying shortly before my contract was up, at which point my boss there threatened to report me to the Department of Labor for not giving two weeks notice. And it occurs to me that if I was not me specifically, someone who hosts a show about labor rights, that trick might have worked. That might have convinced someone who is less knowledgeable that, hey, you know, you've got to stick around here. You've got to fulfill the next two weeks at this job that only signed you for a contract through the end of July. It was part of a pattern at that job of kind of preying on people who had limited experience working in office settings and expecting that they wouldn't know enough to know that they were being taken advantage of. And in my case, I knew I was being taken advantage of and just wanted the job anyways, because it was better than working in a kitchen. Anyways, aside, aside. Uh, hold on. I like that. Yeah. Um, there's um, some other better analysis of the quiet quitting trend. Uh, we mentioned the NPR headline earlier. Um, it quotes heavily... The article quotes heavily from uh, Ed Zitron, who runs a media consulting business for tech startups. Um, and he's pretty vocal in saying that this quiet quitting idea is kind of nonsense. Uh, quote, if you want people to go above and beyond, compensate them for it. Give them $200. Pay them for the extra work, Zitron told NPR over email. Show them the direct path from I am going above and beyond to I am being rewarded for doing so. Which, when you put it that way, seems very straightforward, doesn't it? It seems like maybe the expectation of doing more than the bare minimum needs a, a carrot to go with the stick. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good way to put it, is there's been far too much stick and not enough carrot. And if companies want good performance, they need to give good rewards. Uh, but I can just imagine some like CEO in his penthouse or or her penthouse, girl bosses and everything, uh, just whining and going, I don't want to, because that's the whole reason we're in this mess is they don't want to give good compensation for good work. Um, 
they don't even honestly necessarily care about the good work if we're honest like we all we all kind of feel that going on the vibes uh we get the sense that they don't care about the good work they care about the good image and that's pretty much it that's that's all the stock market cares about and that's all they they care about Citron gets more explicit as this article goes on, uh, quote, the term quiet quitting is so offensive because it suggests that people that do their work have somehow quit their job, framing workers as some sort of villain in an equation where they're doing exactly what they were told, Citron said, quote, is part of an overwhelming trend of pro-boss propaganda trying to frame workers that don't do free work for their bosses as somehow stealing from the company. Yep. It, it's taking advantage of American cultural assumptions about work uh, to just push that line. I I think I, I wanted to put a little bit more numbers on what I said earlier about sort of the pedagogical connection here. And and this occurred to me when, when you mentioned the Zitron quote here, which is that if you as a teacher ask a certain thing, you put this assignment together. So when I was a student, it was pretty common to get a rubric where to get 100, to get everything right, oftentimes you had to go above and beyond the minimum requirements. We have since recognized that this pedagogy is nonsense and that if somebody meets all the requirements, completes everything that you asked them to do, and you've clearly set those out, they should get all the points available for the assignment. If that's how you assess, you may not. If, if that's the traditional way of, if, if you're doing, you know, points earned over points possible. So, in school, completing everything, which is you know the minimum, quote unquote, should get you a perfect score. Then you go to work, and completing everything that is asked of you apparently is now just the minimum. It's not enough. You have to do so much more. This would be the equivalent of somebody handing in, I don't know, a, an essay or a project or whatever you want, and me saying, well, this is everything I asked you for but I'm actually only going to give you a 90 because you didn't also festoon it with, I don't know, a huge amount of like art product, you know, glitter and, and sparklers and whatever, or because this essay isn't written in the correct font, which is not something you knew uh, I was requiring that I actually ask for all of my essays in copper plate, Gothic black for some reason, that kind of thing. And again, it's this huge disconnect between how we educate our students, what we ask, what we ask of children and then as and particularly the kind of children that by and large because of the class that they're born into end up working in these office settings end up working in media jobs and the working in all of the people basically that give a damn about quiet quitting as a phenomenon the people who actually care about you going so far above and beyond to get everything done we educate them one way and then when they get to the workplace, we hit them with an entirely new set of expectations. And the result of that is a lot of those people are going to go, no, I'm not doing that. I'm sorry. And it's natural. They should be setting those boundaries. They should be healthier about that. And I think a lot of people are very, very angry that, again, anybody at all is willing to say, mm, no, I, I need healthier boundaries in my life. I need to not check email on Saturdays. I need to be able to mute Slack on my phone. I need my boss to not always be able to reach me if I'm not at work that day. Sucks. What are you going to do? Whine about it to the media, I guess. Uh, there's a media outlet that you would expect to be uh, 
taking the boss's side on things, it's the Harvard Business Review. We mentioned them earlier, but they seem to be taking a level-headed approach to this, at least in this August 31st article by Jack Sanger and Joseph Folkman. You know, they put some data to it uh, showing that actually the workers who are quiet quitting are uh, a product of bosses not being effective at their jobs. Um, you know, the highest percentile of managers and bosses are bringing out workers who are willing to go the extra mile for them. And it encourages bosses who uh, have workers who are quiet quitting to maybe look within and wonder if the problem is actually themselves. It's kind of refreshing to see like a manager focused outlet, like with that level of self-awareness. For sure. Uh, And again, I think they're kind of right. Not that. Yeah, I think they're right. Like if you have a good boss or a good leader, you can get people to do more and be inspired to do more. And that is a little manipulative and we can all agree to that to some degree. But um, it's, it is refreshing to not see somebody in the media saying, well, these people should just be imbued automatically with this desire to uh, do everything possible. And why should I ever give them any reason to do that? Um, that should just be innate. And yeah, it's like a uh, boomers being mad about participation gr- trophies. Um, you're the ones who invented them, ding dongs. Like, why are you upset about them? Y- you gave them to us. We didn't come up with those. Um, same way, like bosses and managers who are mad about quiet quitting, like you're the one not doing your job enough. Um, be a better leader. Get on it. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is that people do publicly acknowledge that this is a leadership problem. And they, surprisingly, like people you wouldn't expect will say a good leader is capable of, you know, number one, should be capable of motivating people to do the extra work and think it was their idea. But even failing that, a good leader has realistic expectations. Uh, and doesn't push people to do things that they can't or really shouldn't do. The problem is that I don't really know what it is about the people that get selected for leadership a lot of the time. Um, I don't know if it's the training that they have to undergo or if it's, you know, the, the books that are out there on effective management and that kind of thing. But a lot of the time, they never get past the stage of why won't people do what I tell them to do? And they, it, it, it never gets to the point where they consider what culture am I creating? What, how am I improving the environment where I am? Am I bringing these people in? You know, if, if I'm going to ask them to go above and beyond, then I need to bring them as partners and they need to be part of the process and part of the decision-making and all of that. But people don't want to do that. They want to have the near dictatorial control that the management class has in this country, but also act like we're all buddies. And that's just not going to work. You can't do both of those things. And it is in that tension that you get the whininess. It is in that tension that all of the worst leadership decisions get made. The last article I want to get to in today's show is um, from the CBC, and it discusses actually the opposite issue, uh, what it calls 
quiet firing rather than workers who are just doing the bare minimum. We have a situations of bosses who are sort of easing workers out of career opportunities, out of the ability to, you know, be successful in their current position. It quotes heavily from a, an office worker in the nonprofit sector who was, you know, just ushered out of meetings that she needed to attend and kept away from advancement opportunities. But the article goes on to note that uh, workers can be even more vulnerable to quiet firing outside of office jobs. In some of the high turnover industries like restaurants, grocery stores, and retail, there's a very high likelihood that people just simply get scheduled out or they have their hours reduced. Uh, When workers don't have guaranteed hours, it makes them much more vulnerable to quiet firing. Speaking from experience, I had a job in a kitchen that at one point gave me like a three-hour work week, which may well have been a violation of New York state law, but at any rate was intended as a way of, you know, telling me to shape up or ship out, I guess. Um, The idea here of quiet firing being that you can avoid the messy business of actually firing somebody by encouraging them to quit without, you know, telling them to quit. The article notes that These sorts of cases can fall under what's known under Canadian employment law as constructive dismissal, giving workers grounds to seek financial compensation for being pushed out of their jobs. But people who work in grocery stores, for example, are not likely to have the financial resources to take legal action against their employer. And so this is the sort of common trend you might expect where at the bottom rungs, you've got people who are new to the workforce, have limited resources, and just aren't able to actually produce enforcement of labor law that may be on the books. Um, We certainly have that issue in this country. We've talked about the NLRB at length in episodes past. So we've got about five, six minutes left on our hour. How can we turn this into something positive? We don't have time for a full posse segment on today's show, but uh, how are we going to make people smile when they- No toxic today, huh? Yeah. I still hate that. For the record, I still really hate that toxic-posy. Uh, okay. It's out of my system for now until you say it next week. Uh, how can we turn this positive? Uh, is it positive think, already? Like, is I the fact that so. so many people are doing this that it's now like a TikTok trend and- now media famous is this just good news on its own that people are uh doing the bare minimum i think so i i the only thing i would maybe caution against is turning quiet quitting and like setting boundaries for workplace into just full-on apathy in all lives and i think there's some relationship between apathy and quiet quitting and you know, apathy for your work's fine. Apathy for your comrades, not. Um, so just limit the quiet quitting <laughs> into only your capitalist pursuits, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's pretty positive in general that people have boundaries now and that 
there's a shift in how we view work. Like I had a conversation with my boss a few weeks ago, uh, where for, for some dumb reason, I'm not really sure what possessed me. I was trying to convince him of why the railroad workers were willing to strike because they weren't getting time off. And uh, he kept coming back to, well, but they're getting paid for the hours they work. And just getting him to understand that's not the point. The point is that they don't have a work-life balance and that that outside of work, there is things that we want to do and we want to pursue. And we need the ability to do that. Um, he wasn't really <laughs> grasping that. Maybe he did in the end. I don't know. Um, I also felt that I was maybe straying way more into the how red I actually am, um, which we don't need to declare to our boss, I guess, most days. Uh, but yeah, I think it's a good thing that we're more focused on work-life balance and that, yeah, it's good. More quiet quitting or boundaries at very least, more boundaries. There are no positives to what happened over the last several years. Every single one of those, every single one of the, like, the good things has been paid for dearly in blood and death and a ton of other horrible things. But if there is, but what you do see is that people realized a lot of people and even people that maybe traditionally wouldn't have gotten there realized after the pandemic and during it, because we're not really in after yet, is that there's more to life than how you earn your money. There's so much more than doing your job and going home and then just repeating the same thing over and over again with maybe the occasional vacation thrown in there. And I think a lot of the problems that we in, in particular in this country, but a lot of the problems that we have across the world are the result of being, uh, uh, over the, the, the past few decades, the market consensus, the neoliberal consensus, basically saying, you know what? We don't need imagination anymore. We just need to tweak things here and there, and everything will get slightly better as long as we all agree that what's important is that the line continues to go up infinitely. And now the line has gone down multiple times in one decade, which it's not supposed to do. You know, instru instructions unclear, lines stuck in basement kind mm -hmm. of thing. And capital doesn't really have a way to explain why that's happening. So they've turned to abuse. They've turned to making us feel bad for wanting to set boundaries. But... I don't know if you can stop people from realizing that fulfillment doesn't come from the person that signs your paycheck. Even if you find your work fulfilling, that's you. That's not your boss. That's not your treasurer, your organization's treasurer. That's not the VP of finance giving you that fulfillment. That's you finding fulfillment in your work. And you have the choice to decide where you draw that from where you get that energy from, where you recharge from. And a lot of people are deciding correctly that it's not going to come from the thing that they do so they can eat. Maybe it never should have been, but it definitely isn't. And that, I think, is a welcome sea change, even if, you know, Jet Powell is currently doing his best to make that impossible. 
I think there's a lot. I think if you recorded this episode four or five years ago, this conversation is very different. For one, we wouldn't have quite quitting as the euphemism for it, but you know, dysphemism, I guess I should say. Anyway, I'll peter out there. Not to turn this into something negative, but there is looking forward to the future. I think we, it's important to be on guard to the ways in which quiet quitting is inevitably going to be used as a cudgel, as something that needs to be uh, guarded against and prevented at all costs. We wouldn't be seeing this much attention on it if somebody somewhere wasn't looking to cut it out and scrap it entirely. Your ability to uh, coast by at work, you know, is something that should be protected. Notably, there was a tweet last week from Larry Summers, who was an important economics guy in the Clinton and Obama administrations, trying to blame quiet quitting for a drop in productivity growth. And there's a number of rebuttals showing that, no, that's just false, but this is Larry Summers. He's a guy who presidents listen to. So be on the lookout for uh, bosses who are using the term quiet quitting in meetings, bosses who are trying to get you to up your game beyond what they were already asking of you. Ever vigilant. <laughs> for this week, I'm punching out. I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. And this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.